We have with us tonight, Sandy Brown. Okay, good evening, welcome. Clip Manager must have had a, a lot, a serious amount of good quality water over the years because there were a lot of breweries, there were a lot of mills, a lot of distilleries, and they all needed good quality water. In distilling, for example, there were eight large distilleries in Clip Manager. Canvas, which lived till, till 93. Carsbridge, which at one point <coughs> was the largest distillery in Europe. Uh, Glenoco, Grange, which was the first to put in a coffee still. I'll talk about that later on. Uh, Kilbegie, which in 1799 was the largest distillery in Scotland. Kennet Pans, and we'll talk about Kilbegie and Kennet Pans. Lindmill was there for a short period of time, and Strathmore again, not uh, established until 1957, but again was a big <coughs> distillery. It was situated on the site of what was Knox's Brewery in Canvas, so it was literally across the road from Canvas Distillery. Clip Manager is 159 square kilometres in size. It's less than a quarter the size of uh, of the island of Isla. So with distilling like that, it shows the quality of the water. The distilleries originally, uh, Canvas, Carsbridge, Glenoco, Grange, yes, all of, all of them other than Strathmore would have started with pot stills because continuous production was not uh, established until Steam's invention of 1828 and so they, they were established in the 18th century and they would all have started cash bridge and canvas as well as pot still production. In 1786, there were 881,969 gallons exported to England and they were exported it not as whiskey but uh, for gin production. The gin producers in London complained <coughs> mightily to Westminster and the excise duty on the exports was increased in 1788, which caused a number of distilleries across the central belt to go into sequestration. What you have to bear in mind is that until 1826, there wasn't a, an excise act that worked. But if you were a distiller across the central belt of Scotland, you couldn't hide from the customs and excise. Uh, I'm not saying that they were truly truthful about everything they produced and everything they paid tax on, but uh, they couldn't hide the fact that they were distilling. And because the illicit hooch was coming in off the hill into town centres, because it was reckoned that they were in... Uh, 1755, sorry, 1756, there were 400 illicit stills in Edinburgh and only nine licensed stills. Uh, and the illicit stills obviously weren't paying duty, so therefore their product was a lot cheaper than the, than the legal stills. So the legal stills were being run faster and faster. They were distilling in minutes instead of hours. So the quality coming out of them at that point in time, pre-1823, pre was not very good. 
Pot until 1828, as I said. Um, canvas moved on to continuous distillation in 1836. Glenoco moved on in 1846. And Bridge moved on to continuous distillation in 1852. The distilleries were big in, in terms. In 1799, we'll show you where the distilleries were at that point in time. Basically, Canvas was here, Strathmore or north, north of Scotland is here, Glenople is here, Grange here, Carsbridge here, Linmill here, Kennet Pans down by the river here, and Kilbegi, uh, where the, uh, where the um, recycling plant is. Basically, three of these distilleries, Canvas, Carsbridge, and Glenople, were half of DCL, Distillers Company Limited, in 1877. Originally, um, John Bald at Carsbridge had joined a, a Scottish grain producers organisation which was set up to set prices in, 98, sorry, in 1856, and it was what we would now call a cartel. It was supposed to last for a year, it lasted nine years. Then DCL was established in 1877 uh, with, as I said, Canvas, Carsbridge, Glenoco, Port Dundas in Glasgow, uh, Cameron Bridge, and uh, Kirkliston distilleries. So basically, Clipmanager provided 50% of uh, grain whiskey production in 1877. Da -da 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 -da. Kobegi and Kenneth Pans, as I said, were exported to London, and until 1828, everything was wrong one. Every, everything was pot still production. In 1799, in the statistical account of Clipmanon, the Reverend Moody stated that the distillery at Kennet Pans, which is advantageously situated on the very banks of the River Forth, was in proportion to that of Kobegi as three to five. And before these two distilleries were stopped, by stopped I mean sequestrated, they paid to government an excise duty considerably greater than the whole land tax of Scotland. At present, in 1799, the duty paid by both is £8,000 sterling. That's the equivalent of $1.6 nowadays. So the government was taking a lot of money from just these two distilleries. Robert Steen was at Kilbegi. His father, John Steen, was at Kennett Pans. In, in the mid-1750s, when Kennett Pans was set up, it was the largest distillery in Scotland. But obviously, Kilbegi became much larger. Because they're pushing the stills very quickly, um, they're trying to find some way of producing spirit quicker uh, and producing a spirit that is drinkable at the end of the day. And there was a lot of experimentation went on into continuous distillation. Robert Steen was the first to produce a, an effective continuous still. And the downside with his, his still, which was patented in 1828, was that the shells on which the, um, the spirit condensed were made of hair cloth, and the, spirit, the acid in the spirit burnt through the hair cloth. So they weren't sustainable. Um, 
there was a, a former Inspector General of Excise in Dublin by the name of Aeneas Coffey. And in 18, um, 1824, he took over the docked distillery in Dublin. And he took Steen's invention and he improved it. He made the shells not of hair cloth but of copper. So they were sustainable. And his patent was patented on in 1833. And every continuous still around the world nowadays is based on coffee's invention. At that point in time, Scotch whiskey was small in, relative, in world terms. And Irish whiskey was much, much larger. They reckon that by the middle of the 19th century, there were 2,000 distilleries in production in Ireland, whereas in Scotland, I think we had about 184, the largest number we had. The Irish distillers would not accept Coffey's invention because they saw him as a competitor. And they argued that their uh, single pot still production was better than the, the production coming out of the continuous still from Coffey. The Scotch whisky distillers, looking for something to make life easier and cheaper, grasped it with both hands. Uh, the first distillery to put a coffee still in was Grange in Alloa in 1834, followed by, um, followed by Cameron Bridge. And as I said, Canvas went over in, da -da -da -da, what date was it? Uh, Canvas went 1836, Glenoco 1846, and Carsbridge 1852. So they all moved on to the coffee still because the, the steam invention was not, uh, was not sustainable. Andrew Usher was a blender in Edinburgh. He was a grocer and he produced teas and he produced preserves. They reckon nowadays that it was his wife who did the blending but he had a contract to sell 600 casks of Glenlivet every month. And he came up with the bright idea of blending the Glenlivet with um, continuous or still production, so grain whiskey. Because malt whiskey is flavorsome and grain whiskey is less flavorsome normally. Uh, if you think about it, the, the grass, gas chromatographical picture uh, you've got high points in flavor and low points in flavor. With malt whiskey, um, Major David McKessick, who used to own Glen Grant, said it's not what we take out of the product in distillation, it's what we leave in that gives it its character. And by that he meant the high points of flavor and the low points of flavor. Whereas a continuous still grain whiskey, the high points are lower and the low, low points are higher, so you've got a much more refined spirit at the end of the day arguably a much more elegant spirit range at the, at, at the end of the day. But it has this reputation of being coarse because a lot of people have only tasted it when it's young. And as we'll see tonight, it develops beautiful flavors with maturation and age. Um, but in, in its youth, it still is fairly coarse. So Andrew Usher created this blend and that created the demand for continuous still whiskey. Uh, the whiskey barons, Tommy Dewar, Alexander Walker, J. 
James Buchanan created their business by copying what Usher had done in Edinburgh. In 1853, vatting under bond was allowed. So previously, if you wanted to, to vat it, you had to do it duty paid, but allowed under bond, so it permitted distillers around the country to embrace this, uh, this activity. And Usher's old vatted Glenlivet was released, um, and the co companies of McKinley and Lowry, which are still around today, uh, were established on the back of that. How many of you have been around distilleries? All of you? Yes, you, you, know, you know what a pot still looks like. Uh, and they're relatively small. The largest distillery here in Scotland, sorry, the largest pot still distillery in Scotland at the moment is Glenfiddich, believe it or not. 43 stills producing something like 28, no, 43 stills producing 24 million litres of alcohol. Uh, people think of Glenfiddich as a small distillery. Um, Springbank produces 100,000 litres, full, full stop. Um, Glengoyne produces 900,000 litres, full stop. Uh, but Glenfiddich produces 28 million. Cameron Bridge, on the other hand, grain distillery, 136 million litres of alcohol. So the continuous still distilleries in Scotland are seven, and they produce more spirit than all 145 malt whiskies put together. So that, that shows the, the size of them. So basically what happens within a, a continuous still is that the wash goes in there, the high alcohol beer goes in there and falls down. And steam goes in, sorry, faints go in here and steam goes in here. So steam rises through there, up through the, 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 the wash pipe, uh, sorry, sorry, through the vapor pipe and rises through here. As it rises, it heats the wash. The wash comes up through here, falls down through here, evaporates goes up through the vapor pipe again, and then comes off at whatever strength you want to take it off at. Um, North British in Edinburgh takes it off the still at 94.6% alcohol. The highest alcoholic strength you're allowed to distill a two in Scotland, and still call it Scotch whiskey, is 94.8% alcohol. The highest alcohol, alcoholic spirit in the world is a spirit from Poland called Polish Pure Spirit, 100% alcohol. So basically, instead of having two separate pot stills or three separate pot stills, you have got two sides to it uh, with the, the cold wash coming in here, being heated up and then evaporating and taking off whatever strength you want to add. The industry embraced because the invention was originally steams. And uh, so therefore, it's another Clipmanager invention. And the three families, the Steams, the Hagues, and the Jamesons, all originated in this area, all farmed in this area, all distilled in this area. Admittedly, Hagues, Hagues had a farm um, this side, or between Kobegi and Kennet Pans, um, but they, they didn't distill within Clipmanager. Uh, the Steens did, and uh, Jameson, uh, he was a lawyer here in Alloa, uh, but he also bought into a distillery with the Steens in uh, Tully Allen, 
So he got into distilling despite the fact he was a, uh, a, a lawyer here. So Robert Usher, who was the son of Andrew Usher, said in 1908 that the company's sales to England were modest prior to 1860, but following blending increased in leaps and bounds. So it became very much a, uh, something that was acceptable uh, to the consumer. It was acceptable to the, 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 uh, the, 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 the licensee and the distillers were happy with it as well. Then along came 1905 and in Islington, some publicans were charged with selling a product not of the specified, um, not of the quality and standard um, expected. So they were, the publicans had sold blended whiskey, which contained grain whiskey and malt whiskey, and the people complaining argued that Scotch whiskey was only malt whiskey. And this was fought, obviously, by DCL, and they created uh, a bottling of canvas, which, as you see on the label, it says, not a headache in a gallon. Uh, so you can drink a gallon of it and no headache. Uh, this was to counter that. Uh, they, had, they set up a Royal Commission, and it reported in 1908, and it found that uh, there was no re real difference between grain whiskey and malt whiskey, so therefore they could both be called Scotch whiskey. And that made a huge difference to them. 1860, we're seeing Irish whiskey uh, losing its place around the world. Um, as we went into the 1860s, there was a plant collector in Hastings who brought some American vines um, into, into Hastings, and within it was a little thing called Phylloxera vestatrix, which is a pest that uh, attacks the, the, the roots of the vines, or the, the European vines rather, uh, Vitis vinifera, and destroys the vine's immune system. So the vines across France started dying off from about 1880. That spread into Italy, that spread into Germany, it got over into, uh, across the Pyrenees into Spain in the, 80, in the 1920s, and people had to grub up the dead plants and plant more. Um, they eventually discovered by grafting the Vitis vinifera above the ground with the roots of the American vine, Riparia or, or Berlandii, then it was phylloxera resistant. And around the world, the only country which has resisted phylloxera is Chile, and that is because you've got the Andes to the east, they've got the Pacific to the west, the, the Atacama Desert to the north, and the Antarctic to the south. Um, there is no phylloxera in Western Australia, but you're not allowed to carry plant material from east to west in Australia. So if you walk onto a plane with an apple in Sydney heading west, you get it taken away from you. They're not allowed to take it. So phylloxera meant there was no wine made, or li very little wine made, and so therefore there's no brandy. And the Scotch whisky distillers wandered around the world and offered their product to, uh, for people to put their soda into. So whisky and soda became the big thing instead of brandy and soda on the back of that. 
Ireland uh, went through its, its civil war, uh, with uh, the, the war with the, the British, and basically on the back of that, the Commonwealth countries were not allowed to import Irish products. So Irish whiskey was very big in the United States and Canada. Um, Prohibition came into the United States in 1920, and Scotch whiskey sent their whiskey into um, Canada, and it got into the United States from there. Uh, Al Capone made his fortune smuggling whiskey across the border from Canada. The Kennedys, the royal family in the United States, made their fortune smuggling whiskey across the border from Canada. But the, the Canadians were not allowed to import Irish whiskey, so I, uh, their market in Canada and the United States dried up. And by 1960, we were down to two distilleries in the whole of Ireland. Uh, we're seeing huge growth at the moment in Irish whiskey, but um, and I'm, I think the Scots are a wee bit complacent about it all at the moment. Uh, the, the Irish are really developing it well in the States. The, 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 the growth in exports from Ireland is huge uh, in terms of what it was 10 years ago. Da -da 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 -da. No, no, I won't do that. Um, two world wars made a huge difference to Britain after Scotch whiskey. Their sales went through the roof um, because people from Scotland took drinking Scotch whiskey overseas with them. We had uh, French uh, sailors and airmen and Polish sailors and airmen and soldiers came in, into, into this country, picked up the habit of drinking Scotch whiskey and took it home with them. And the sales grew enormously until 1978, where South America dried up overnight. And we had a, we had a, a huge whiskey lake, whiskey loch on the back of that by the early 1980s. Johnny Walker, one company, over-budgeted by a million litres of alcohol in 79. That meant that they told all the distilleries that supply Johnny Walker that they would need, you know, it would have been something like 20 million litres of alcohol. There were a million litres of alcohol out. That meant there was all that stock lying in the warehouses with no customer for it. Multiply that throughout the industry, and that's why we had a whiskey lock and we were closing distilleries right, left, and centre in the 80s. Some of them, like Canvas and Carsbridge, never to open up again. Uh, this is a picture from around 1885 uh, from, the, from Barnard's book. He, Alfred Barnard wandered around the distilleries of the United Kingdom and Ireland in 1885-86. His book was published in 1887. And that's a photograph or a, an etching from it. I have an original Barnard, which was rescued from a skip in 1987. Yeah, 1987. Um, Di Diageo says wonderful things about, um, about its heritage, but in the 80s, they were throwing people, throwing them out. Uh, and I, I got an original Barnard on the back of it. Um, I got several other books as well on the back of it, you know, rescued from a skip, literally. So. Carsbridge hit a world record in uh, 1980, and the mash done. Uh, the workers, when Barnard wandered round, 
there were 150 men working at the distillery. 40 of them were a fully trained fire brigade. There were 44 fire plugs on the premises. It, fit, it, it covered 10 acres at that point. That's what it was in 76. And literally all that's left is, oops, all that's left of the buildings is Carsbridge House up here. Um, so Oko House there and Harvey House there. That's it. Everything else is flattened. Supposedly turned into housing. Right, right, okay. Right, let's look at the canvas. So the first glass on your left is a 29-year-old canvas um, distilled on the 8th of August, 1991 and bottled the 15th of October, 2020. The nose... And the color tells you it's a, a, a sherry cask. The, the richness coming through there. Those little things there, um, you put your thumb on the hole and you can drip the water in. It's you know, a little bit of honey there. There's some dried fruit notes, as in the, the sherry notes. Maybe a little bit of nuttiness as well with water, and you should always add water. The addition of water creates an exothermic reaction. It raises the temperature by two degrees centigrade and releases aromas and flavors. So it makes it a bigger drink at the end of the day. So the water, there's some wood there, there's some vanilla notes, toffee, backed up by that fruit on the palate. But you're getting the wood flavors coming through there, very dominant, or fairly dominant in the flavor. So basically, this was bottled by Lady de Glen. If they had sat on this for another five or six years, it would, it would have been too dominant. There's, it's pretty noticeable. Alcoholic strength is, alcoholic strength is 62.2. They, and they would have filled the casks at about 70, 72% alcohol uh, in those days. Nowadays, most distilleries drop it to 63 and a half. Um, a pot still production, two, two distillations will take you to 70, 72. Uh, Brewer Laddie are playing around. Some casks are filling it at distillation strengths. Others are dropping to 63 and a half. All the experimentation was done in the 80s and 90s, which is why... The, the industry argues they moved to 63 and a half at that point in time. Now, I'm fairly sure they moved to that because it's less flammable at 63 and a half than it is at 72, so therefore the insurance premium is lower. But no one admits that. So on the palate, again, as I said, the, the wood flavors are... The wood flavors are... Coming a wee bit dominant there. Um, canvas was set up by John Mowbray in 1806. And as I said, it was converted in 1836. When Barnard went, uh, went there, he recorded that they produced 4 million gallons of whiskey a year. 
the grain was delivered by sea or rail, and the rail track ran through the middle of the distillery, and as it still does. You know, the rail railway runs through the middle of the, of the cooperage at the moment. Uh, it had 60 men working at it, and for some reason or another, they had seven customs officers on site, um, which seems a bit excessive. Maybe they didn't trust uh, the Mowbrays at that point. It covered eight acres, and there was a fire in September 19, 1914, which almost wiped it out, uh, and it was closed till 1937. They, they, they went through the 20s, and obviously the United States dried up uh, because of prohibition, and uh, they didn't start rebuilding it until 1934, and it was closed in 1993. So this is one of the last cars that came out of it. The Karst Bridge is a 28-year-old vintage 1965, distilled on the 7th of November 65, bottled in October 94. This is from Signatory, uh, so it's um, Edredeur. On the nose, you don't have that richness which, which you had with the sherry cast canvas. It is there's a vanilla note fr from the wood. There's a little bit of um, a little bit of shortbread note, to it, maybe even bread, yeasty note to it, and some um, simple fruit, maybe maybe a little bit orange, but not much more. With water. With water, it, 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 it seems to close up a bit. There are a little bit of licorice, a little bit of a, a slightly musty touch to it on the palate. Good body, nice richness to it, but there's still that slightly musty uh, feeling to it, you know, licorice and um, there's a lot of tannin coming through, so there's a lot of wood you're feeling on the tongue, you know, when you uh, chew a tea bag, for example, you know, the, the tannin feel in the, the tongue, you're getting that there. Yes, you do get corky um, bottles of whiskey. I had two Glendronach vet in very quick succession um, in the 90s, the cork industry moved through 300 years of technology in about 20 years, and now th there's one company guarantees no cork, no cork taint at all. Uh, cork taint, is known as 246 um is caused by this bacteria. Sorry, this yeah, it's a bacteria in in the soil, indigenous in the um, in the cork. Um, the cork oak forests of Portugal, Spain, and the Maghreb in North Africa. And in recent years, they've discovered if they leave the bottom, the, the, the cork is the bark of the tree. And they take, when the, once the tree is 25 years old, they take the, the bark off every nine years. And they've discovered if they leave the bottom meter on, 
there's much, much less incidence of, of corkiness. Um, back in the 90s, I reckon that you were 12, one bottle in every case of wine was corked. So one bottle in 12. Uh, others out there argued it was one bottle in eight. Uh, I have had one corky bottle in the last two years. So the, 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 the problem is almost solved. Not quite, but almost. And you could be right, that could be corkiness. The third one, how many for time? That's fine. Um, the third one is uh, north of Scotland, uh, which is also known as Strathmore. Uh, north of Stock Scotland was established in 1957 by George Christie. Um, it cost him £10,000 to buy the site. Uh, he installed three continuous stills and initially produced patent malt whiskey. So he moved over to grain whiskey in 1960. In 1956, he bought a site near Kinusi, and his, he was going to establish Speyside Malt Whiskey Distillery there. Uh, he started building in 1960, and he didn't produce his first spirit until 1990. Basically, he built when he had the money, and when he didn't have the money, he stopped. But he and his son also owned Glen Turret for a number of years and sold it to Highland Distillers eventually. Um, DCL bought it in 1980 and closed it in 82. On the nose, oh, that's rather nice. Toffee, really quite sticky, nutty toffee. A little bit of condensed milk. Yeah, condensed milk. Um, oh, yeah, that's rather nice. With water. Uh, it closes down a bit. Although, although, no, no, there's a fruit. Apple, no, pears coming out. But the, that, that toffee notes there at the back, really rather nice. And the palate. Mm. 33. 33 alcoholic content, 56.7. Fifty-six point seven. Um, so it was distilled. Dist it's bottled by Dura Rattery, who are down in Ayrshire. In I can't remember the name of the village. Sorry, Kirkoswald. That's it. Thank you. Uh, owned by Tim Morrison, ex of Morrison, Morrison Bowmore, he now owns Clydeside Distillery uh, in Glasgow. Distilled in 7th of December 72, bottled 20th October 2006. Yeah, I was trying to remember the name of Kirkoswald the other day and it just couldn't come to me. Yeah. I meant to look it up. That's the only picture. I've, I've been able to find of North of Scotland, 
And as you see, it's a drawing. Canvas again, circa 1885. Oh, by the way, Cars Bridge had two very high chimneys. One was 100 feet high, one was 140 feet high, and one of them, the, the tallest one, was a, a, a landmark for people coming into to Aula for many, many years. They used coal to heat uh, the stills. They used coal to dry the grain. Uh, Barnard records that uh, Carsbridge had a grain loft 100 feet long by 40 feet wide and it had a barley loft the same size. In 1885, 6, when Barnard wandered around, technology wasn't there to cook the grain the way they do nowadays for continuous distill distillation. So they whether it was barley or, or rye or wheat or, or corn, they laid it out on the maltings floor and did exactly the same as Bowmore, for example, does on a maltings floor and dry it over a, over a, 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 in a kiln. And they used coal because within this part of the world, there were many coal fields. You know, people talk about the peat, the, the Scotch whiskies historically using peat. Glenlivet imported peat from Orkney because they didn't have the quality of peat they needed in Speyside. Likewise, weirdly enough, Nick Morgan posted something last week or the week before, uh, an article from a, a Fife newspaper dated 1855, and it was about peat coming from Orkney Carsbridge distillery. So they used peat as well as coal. Uh, but obviously, this bringing peat in from Orkney is costing them money, but they were looking for the character which Orkney peat gave them. So it was, uh, they were imaginative in those days as well. But throughout the area, coal was used. The stains, for example, in 1790 paid four shillings a ton for their coal. That's 20 pence for those of you who are too young to remember that. So, on the pallet, you haven't got, the, despite the fact that it's eight years old, or you haven't got the wood influence that you had on the, um, on either the, the canvas or the cast bridge, there's good richness there. There's a. It's, it's not as dry as it was, as it was expecting. That's uh, uh, a sherry cask, I think. It's probably a refill sherry. That um, doesn't say. No, no, it's a bourbon cask. Uh, so, but it's not a bourbon cask. But you've got a lot of richness coming through. So it must be a first fill bourbon cask. Uh, and really, really very good, I must admit. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by that, to be quite honest. Canvas, 1969. And you see the river coming down there. The railway, <coughs> railway is there. And there's photographs from 
1974, showing the, the chimney and the, the river. Apparently, uh, Diageo have just bought the, the, the canvas pools. Don't know what they're going to do with them at the, at the mouth of the river. The warehouses there are the largest bonded warehouses in the world, uh, and it's getting even bigger. There, for example, is what is there now. The cooperage, that, that was taken before the cooperage had its uh, renovation. If we go back to so, whiskey number four is something we just decided to throw in because it, it does have a manager influence. It's an 18-year-old Jameson's. Uh, and it is the Bow, Bow Street distillery. So it's matured for part of its life at Bow Street, uh, which is now a museum. That's what it was when Barnard wandered around in 1885. And that's what it looks like nowadays. So this is distilled at uh, Middleton down near Cork and finished for the last, uh, probably the last six months of its life in the, the warehouses at Bow Street. See, still the influence from Cook Manager. Yeah, that's right. Jameson, as I said, was a lawyer here. Um, he took a share in the Bow Street, Bow Street Distillery with the Steens uh, for six years, I think it was, and then he and his wife and children moved across to Ireland. He took over the Bow Street Distillery himself. And he had seven sons. Um, six of them got involved in distilling. One of them came back here and continued his legal practice in Alloa. Uh, but it became the number one distillery, sorry, the number one whiskey in the world for some years um, because of the amount that was being sold in the United States. It still is the biggest selling Irish whiskey. So on the nose, on the nose, after the, the richness of the ones we've had before, it's quite light despite the fact it's 18 years old. There's a touch of, of, of orange, no, no, lemon there. There's a little bit of, little bit of, syrup and maybe demerara sugar. Alcoholic strength is 40, no sorry, 55.1. It opens out with the water. You've got a lot of toffee. You've got that um, condensed milk character again. Really some um, a little bit of a floral note on the, on the edge of it, on the palate. There's, yeah, but there's a, there's a waxiness there, which, which is a character of, of pot still production. Single pot still production in Ireland, they use malted barley and unmalted barley. Uh, so they, they, they reckon the unmalted barley gives them this waxy character, which uh, is there and is a character they're looking for. But um, there is a 
There's a continuous still down at, uh, at Middleton, as well as pot stills. And out front of the distillery is what was the world's largest pot still. It was so large that there were um, stanchions welded onto it and supported by the ceiling to stop the whole thing collapsing in on itself. Because when it still collapses on itself, you get this implosion and you, you get fire and all the rest of it. We already mentioned uh, a couple of fires and also, no, we mentioned one fire and the, the fire brigade at Cars Bridge, which was an essential part of it um, because fires and distilleries can be fairly disastrous. So, like it? Yep, yep. Good. Thank you for your attendance. Uh, any questions? Just nail me in the next five minutes, four minutes, uh, or something. Uh, <coughs> but Cotmanager has always had a, an influence in whiskey. Unfortunately, the one thing Cotmanager lacks at the moment is. Um, accommodation. You know, tourists who are coming here for the whiskey connection want decent accommodation and there's very little in Clip Manager. John, John Jameson is actually buried in the graveyard. Where are we? Uh, there. Over there. Yep. Over there. And to show the, the incest, no, not incest. Uh, he, married, <laughs> he, he married one of Haig's daughters. Uh, so there's, there's this connection between the, the distilling families. The Steens, the Hagues, and the Jamesons, there always has been this connection. I've argued for oh God, almost, 40, almost 40 years now that the industry should have a marketing bureau. There's no one markets Scotch whiskey. The Irish have just put in a system where they're marketing Irish whiskey. The English have just put in a system where they're marketing English whiskey. But the Scotch Whiskey Association says, no, the industry doesn't want it. So effectively, what happens is that the various members of the Scotch Whiskey Association, the companies within the, don't want to share ideas. They don't want to give marketing ideas to the competitors. Um, but we're getting to the stage now where we're seeing, for example, 90, sorry, 2000 and Three, 2003, 2003, 2004, I got an email from a woman in the United States who was doing PR for the American Craft Distillers Association. And at that point in time, they had 36 or something like that members, and 32 turned up at their annual convention in wherever it was. In 2014, I got another email from her. They had 1,351 members by that point. A lot of these are producing malt whiskey. Not all of them, but a lot of them are producing malt whiskey in the United States to the extent that the BATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, is setting down legislation for malt whiskey production in the US. And yeah, it does, yeah, it does. You know, yeah, the, the island of Tasmania has 33 malt whiskey distilleries. France has got 80 malt whiskey distilleries. And you think the Scottish Whiskey Association is just sitting back and twiddling its thumbs. 
Sorry? India. India. Oh, yeah, yeah, India, absolutely. But, but remember, most Indian distilleries distill from molasses, so you and I would call it rum. The largest selling whiskey in the, in the world is Officer's Choice, which you have never heard of. It's an Indian whiskey. It sells 32 million cases a year, 32 million dozen bottles. It's made from molasses. The second largest whiskey is Bagpiper. Again, it's an Indian whiskey. You don't get to Scotch whiskey till somewhere like eight, and that's Johnny Walker. It's up at, I think it's under 20 million liters of alcohol, under 20 million cases rather. <coughs> Thank you for your time. Thank you. We've overrun, I'm afraid. <laughs>